Well, if you've been around Hope for any time period at all, you know that small groups is a really big deal to us around here. And we love stories like Jody's, people in this church that are stepping up, answering the call of God to start a group or lead a group. And I love what Jody said. She said, if you think God is calling you, then the only person who is standing in the way is you, because he's going to do it. Love that. So today we continue on in our series of summer blockbusters, and if you've been able to be with us over the last few weeks, we've looked at some epic stories in the Old Testament of Adam, Abraham, and Moses, all heroes of the Bible, or at least Abraham and Moses. We're still not quite sure what to do with Adam, right? But anyways, these guys, these three guys played such a prominent role in history that they actually changed the course of history for all of mankind, or at least for their people. So today we're looking at a different kind of a man, a woman. Uh, you know, I was, I was down in Holly Springs a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to one of the volunteers, and she was telling me that she's really enjoyed this summer series, and she was asking me if I was going to be sharing one of the messages. I told her I was. She asked me which epic story I'd be covering, and I told her Esther. And she said, that's cool. You get the girl. And it hit me. That's right. I get the girl. Sorry, fellas. You see, even with a hero and a villain and an epic battle, most blockbusters have something else in common. A beautiful woman, a heroine, the heroine of the story who helps determine the final outcome. I mean, Star Wars had Princess Leia and Padme Amidala. Lord of the Rings had Arwen. The Hunger Games has Katniss Everdeen. And one of my all-time favorites, The Princess Bride, has Buttercup. Some Princess Bride fans in the house, yeah? And Esther, well, Esther has Esther, and you're going to see today that she was really amazing. Now, even if you haven't spent much time around church, chances are you already knew something about Adam, Abraham, and Moses, but the story of Esther is just a little bit more obscure, so let me set it up for you. This story takes place around 480 B.C. That's 1,700 years after Abraham and Isaac, a thousand years after Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And about a hundred years before this story happens, in 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and completely destroy Jerusalem, and they take thousands of Jews into exile into Babylon. And 40 years after that, the Medes and the Persians, they join forces to overthrow the Babylonian Empire, and now the Persians are the new world power. Most of you have heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den, right? Well, the king in that story was Darius, the king of Persia, and he's the one that sent Daniel to the lion's den. And by the way, he was very relieved when Daniel lived through the night to be able to tell the tale. Well, Darius has a son named Xerxes. Xerxes becomes the king of Persia, the king in our story today. So now that you have a little history, let's meet our main characters of the story. So we have King Xerxes. He's the most powerful man in the world at this point. His empire includes 127 provinces stretching all the way from India to Ethiopia. That's a huge empire. And he was a very powerful man. Whatever he said was made law instantly. He's a really big deal. And like every great story, there needs to be a villain. The villain in our story is named Haman. Haman hated the Jews, but he holds a prominent role of influence in the king's court. He's a conceited, money-hungry individual who's looking out for himself and no one else. And then our third character in the story is quite the opposite of Haman. It's a Jew named Mordecai. 
Mordecai stands alone as a righteous man who raises his uncle's daughter when her parents die, when she's a very young age and she's orphaned. And his adopted daughter's name is Hadassah. But we know her from her Persian name, Esther. And Esther means star, dazzling, brilliant, and she was known for her beauty. So let's begin. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Esther. It's just about halfway through the Bible, two books to the left of Psalms, so you can find it there. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the side screens. Or if you've downloaded the Get Hope app, you can follow along. We've got message notes in there. It's a great way to follow along. Take out your smartphone and open up the app and follow in message notes. So as we begin this story, in chapter 1, King Xerxes is in the third year of his reign, and he decides to throw a party to celebrate his power and his might. Now, this just wasn't any old party. This was the mother of all parties. He invites thousands of people from all across his empire. There was nobles and rulers, uh, political leaders, military leaders. And for 180 days, there's party after party where the wine never stopped flowing. Can you imagine six months of that? That's quite a bash. And then to demonstrate his wealth and power in front of all of his subjects, Xerxes decides to put all of his valuable stuff on display. So he drags out his paintings, his statues, his jewelry, his gold, everything of value he puts on display for all to see. And then he's feeling pretty good about himself toward the end of this six-month party. And the Bible says when he was in high spirits from wine, which is never a good time to make decisions, he realizes that he's forgotten his most valuable possession, a thing of beauty, that thing that will make all of the men drool his beautiful wife, Queen Vashti. That was his first wife. So he commands his attendant to bring the queen wearing her crown so he could display her beauty in front of everyone. Now this is about to turn into a hot mess. I mean, you may think, well, what's the big deal? He's the king, he's got a beautiful wife, he just wants to show everyone how pretty she is, right? Well, not quite, because most historians believe that Xerxes had planned to parade Vashti, his wife, in front of all of these inebriated men wearing only her royal crown. That kind of changes the story, doesn't it? So when she finds this out, she sends the attendant back to Xerxes, and the attendant whispers in his ear, King, the queen ain't coming. And Xerxes goes ballistic. I mean, how could she embarrass him in front of all of his friends, in front of all of these men who couldn't wait to see the queen strut her stuff? So his nobles take him aside and they say, King, this will never do. You have to punish this woman. You need to make an example of her so all of the other women in the empire will know that they better respect their husbands. Because in a male-dominated society like Persia, women were only viewed as possessions. And so to defy the king's order, or any husband's order for that matter, that was a really big deal. So Vashti is banished, male domination is restored, and the king is left single and lonely. So at the beginning of chapter 2, his officials come to him and they say, King, you need a new wife. So think of chapter 2 as the ultimate season of The Bachelor on steroids. <laughs> what ensues is a whole year-long beauty pageant to pick the next queen, the next Miss Persia. And who emerges on the scene? Esther. After all, according to chapter 2, verse 7, Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. 
Can the Bible say lovely figure? Well, it does. So apparently she's a real knockout. So naturally, they would be interested in her as a possibility for the queen. But you know, I believe it was more than just her physical beauty that drew people to Esther. Have you ever met someone who just has that something extra about them, something special? I mean, they seem to radiate. No matter what the situation, their inner beauty, their peace, their joy just shines through. Have you ever met someone like that? That's how I picture Esther. And God places his favor on her life. Chapter 2 says that she won not only the favor of everyone who saw her, but ultimately she won the favor of King Xerxes. So sure enough, Esther is chosen and becomes the new queen of Persia. But based on Mordecai's instructions, she doesn't reveal that she's a Jewish girl. Now here's a little detail at the end of chapter 2 that most of us would just be tempted to pass over quickly. It says that there's a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, and Mordecai uncovers this plot. He hears about it. He reports it to the queen. She reports it to the king, and the king's life is saved. So you might think it's sort of a needless detail, but it's just a little insight of how God is working behind the scenes in this story. So at the beginning of chapter 3, the plot begins to thicken. It says in verse 1, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So here we have an influential, wealthy man who becomes the right-hand man to King Xerxes. But there's one thing that you need to know about Haman. He can't stand the Jews. He despises them. He hates them. And he would like nothing more than for all of the Jewish people to be wiped from the face of the earth. Now, it makes you wonder, what kind of hatred, where, where would that kind of hatred come from? Well, it actually comes from many, many years before. It tells us that Haman was an Agagite. And the Agagites were descendants of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who had lived 800 years earlier. And if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll read a story where God commands King Saul of the Israelites to attack and completely destroy the Amalekite people because God saw what was going to happen. But Saul doesn't fully obey that command. And so now, 800 years later, we have Haman holding an 800-year-old grudge against the Jewish people. So the tension begins to build as King Xerxes commands everyone to pay Haman respect. So if Haman passes by, you're meant to bow down to salute, to do something to pay respect to him. But Mordecai wasn't going to play that game because Mordecai was a Jew. He was a devout Jew. And Mordecai was determined to bow down only to the king of heaven, to the God of heaven. He was living his life according to the Ten Commandments. But Haman hated Mordecai for his insubordination. So Haman determines in his mind that when he could figure out how to wipe out the Jewish people, Mordecai would be the first to go. So one day, Haman finds himself alone with the king, and he takes advantage of this situation. And he begins to lay out his plan for exterminating the Jews, but he's careful not to tell the king all of the details. He tells Xerxes, this, there's this certain group of people scattered throughout the provinces whose customs are a threat to the king. He convinces the king that it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them, that they should be utterly destroyed. And so King Xerxes allows Haman to write an edict in the king's name, signed and sealed with the king's signet ring. And in chapter 3, verse 13, we read, 
Dispatchers were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, and to plunder their goods. Now that dreaded day was meant to happen 11 months in the future. Now when Mordecai hears about this, he begins to mourn and weep. And as the word continues to spread, the Jewish people begin to fear for their lives. And by the way, this wouldn't be the first or the last time that God's people would face the possibility of total annihilation. So finally, the news reaches Esther that Haman is trying to pull off this mass extinction of her people. And here we have Esther, a Jewish woman who has become the queen of Persia. But remember, she's never told the king of her Jewish heritage. So Mordecai, basically Mordecai's her father, he sends her a message. You've got to tell the king. There's no way that he's aware of what Haman is up to. He says, you've got to use your influence with the king to plead for the lives of our people. But there was one problem, and Esther knew this. Anyone who approached the king without being invited into his presence would be put to death. So Esther sends word back to Mordecai, and she says, it doesn't look good because the king hasn't invited me into his presence for a whole month. He hasn't even given me the time of day. But Mordecai responds to her with these famous words found in chapter 4. He says to Esther, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And that's the famous words of this book of Esther, for such a time as this. But don't miss his words before that. These words are so filled with faith. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It reminds me of Abraham when his son Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but if we're going to sacrifice an animal, where's the animal? And Abraham in faith, he says, the Lord will provide. Or as we saw in the story of Moses last week, Moses is standing on the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptians bearing in on them and all of the Israelite people complaining, saying, why didn't you just let us die in in Egypt? Moses has one of his greatest moments of leadership when he stands up and with faith in a God of deliverance, he says, the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. It's that same kind of faith that Mordecai had. See, Mordecai knew that he could trust God's promises, that God was sovereign, and he would bring about deliverance for the Jews, whether it was through Esther or maybe it was through another way. You know, I'm sure that Mordecai grew up as a devout Jew, hearing the words and maybe even memorizing the words that God promised a hundred years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah, the words that said, for I have a plan for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, total annihilation didn't sound much like hope and a future. But Mordecai trusted that God's plan was still at work. See, Mordecai understood something else, and this is what I want to see today. God's plan requires willing participants. God's plan requires willing participants. And Mordecai is already participating as much as he is able to, but he's on the outside And Esther's on the inside, so she could have more influence, and that's why he pushes Esther to go. You can hear his father's heart as he's motivating his daughter. It's as if he's saying, come on, kid. 
You can do this. Esther, this may be the very reason why God put you on the throne at this time. You have the king's ear like no one else. Now is the time. Now is the time to speak. This is do or die time. And so Esther responds in verse 16. She says, all right, let's pray and fast for three days, and then I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You know, there are times in our own lives when we have to make a decision to put all of our trust in God and stand alone. Some of you may be at that very point in your lives right now. It's one of the greatest tests of our individual courage, and it's a true test of faith. It's that time where there's a principle at stake that's far more important than the risk that's involved. And if we perish, we perish. That was the point that Esther was at. So three days pass, and it's time for her to go into the king. And I'm sure every eye on the king's chamber was on Esther as she began to approach the throne, his personal bodyguard ready to strike her down at the king's notice. But their prayers were answered. The king holds out his royal scepter, and he has favor on her and allows her to approach. But rather than addressing the king in the presence of his nobles, Queen Esther invites King Xerxes to a banquet that she had prepared, and she asks for Haman to attend as well. Now, at this point, I have to believe that King Xerxes was very intrigued by all of this. I mean, why would Esther risk her life for the sake of a meal? Now, maybe he thought that she was just trying to get his attention, feeling like a neglected wife. And meanwhile, Haman, Haman's loving every minute of this. Not only is he in with the king, but now he assumes that he's got favor with the queen as well. So that night, the king enjoys the meal, and he asks Esther what he can do for her. What, what is her petition? It has to be more than just food, right? But Esther requests that they come to yet another banquet in their honor the very next day. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, this woman's just trying to soften this guy up. But no matter what you call it, I call it a woman's intuition, a woman's creativity. I mean, she knew Xerxes. She knew that he loved banquets, he loved feasting, he loved drinking, so she used that knowledge to her advantage. See, most of us guys, we're not that patient, we're not that creative, so we would have rushed into the king's chambers and said, King, this Haman guy is a fraud. You need to kill him. He's got you totally duped. And that may have been the end of us, but not Esther. She was far more gracious than that, graceful. So Haman leaves the banquet that day all pumped up and full of pride because he assumes that Esther has planned tomorrow's banquet in his honor. But as he leaves, he encounters Mordecai. And once again, Mordecai refuses to bow before him. So Haman is seething. And he goes home and he begins to complain to his wife. Honey, I went through the streets of the city today and everyone saluted for me. Everyone bowed down in my presence except Mordecai, that Jew. What am I going to do with him? He's such a jerk. Now, if that had been me complaining, my wife would have sat me down and said, Doug, grow up. Don't be such a baby. You've got the respect of the king, of the queen. You have the respect of everyone in the empire. Who cares about Mordecai? Forget about it. Let it go. But that's not what Haman's wife said. Instead, she tells him exactly what he wants to hear. In chapter 5, verse 14, she said, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. That's 75 feet. Talk about overkill. 
and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Now, I know that sounds gory, but that was their method of capital punishment. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Think about that. It's as if she's saying, just go and murder this innocent man, then go to the party and have a great time. And Haman is sitting there thinking, now I remember why I married you. (laughs) I mean, he loves this idea. So immediately he has this pole built. But that night, God decides to give King Xerxes a case of insomnia. God again goes to work. It's a reminder of how God's providence is at work behind the scenes, not just in this story, but even in our lives. Do you realize that God is at work today in your life in things that you may not fully realize for months or maybe even for years to come? And as you sit here today, you have no idea why God is doing what he's doing. And then maybe one day you have one of those aha moments, one of those for such a time as this moments. Maybe that moment for you is today. So that night, the king tosses and turns, but he can't sleep. He turns on Jimmy Fallon, doesn't help. He takes a Benadryl, doesn't help. So he calls in one of his attendants and has the book of the record of his reign read to him. Maybe he thought it would put him to sleep. As he's listening, he comes across a story about a guy named Mordecai who prevented an assassination attempt on his life. Remember back in chapter 2? And so he asks the attendant, hey, did anyone ever do anything to honor this Mordecai guy? I mean, maybe give him the key, the honorable key to the city, or maybe give him a brand new shiny chariot, build him a house. Anyone do anything? And the attendant says, no, king, nothing. So Xerxes decides to seek some counsel on how he could properly honor Mordecai. And at this point, Haman is standing in the outer courts of the king. He came early that morning to ask permission of the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had just built. So before he gets a chance to speak, King Xerxes asks him, let me read it for you in chapter 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring the royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gates. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Yes! I love this part. My favorite part of the story. I mean, it's beautiful irony. You can just feel the wind go out of Haman's sails, right? Only God can make this kind of stuff up. So after he experiences the most humiliating day of his life, he still has to attend this banquet with the king and queen. And at the banquet, Xerxes once again asks Esther, what can I do to make you happy? What's your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, at which point most of us would have become very greedy and forgot why we were there, asked for something else, but not Esther. She stays focused. This is the moment she's been waiting for. 
Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And Haman is sitting there listening to all of this. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. No kidding. Haman is finally caught in his trap. And in a moment of poetic justice, the king orders that Haman be impaled on the very pole that he had built the day before for Mordecai. What an amazing story. And that's not even the end of the story, but you can go home and read the end for yourself. Amazing end that the Jews are finally set free, and Mordecai ends up getting the house and the place that Haman had, the place of honor. Just an incredible story. But this story was able to happen because of a woman who understood that God had placed her where she was for such a time as this. She was willing to say, I'm going to step up, and if I perish, I perish. If it kills me, it kills me. And you know, God always has a way of accomplishing his objectives. Another amazing thing about this story is the book of Esther is the only book in the whole Bible that doesn't name God. God is not mentioned once. So you could listen to this story and just think, oh, well, nobody said it was God. Maybe it was just coincidence. It's not coincidence. We see God so clearly in this story working through his providence behind the scenes. And providence is God's ability, his divine ability, to see ahead and to provide the right circumstances and the right people to accomplish his will. And it's not just for Esther, it's for our lives as well. Because here's the thing. God's providence positions us in places of influence. Now, I know that's a lot of peas, but this is exactly what happened in the story of Esther. It's God's providence that sets the stage for his plan to be accomplished. God had Esther rescued as a young orphan and raised by a godly man, Mordecai. God gave her the natural beauty and the personality to win the favor of all the right people and to ultimately become the queen of Persia for such a time as this. But at the crucial moment of the story, the ball was still in her court. God didn't force her. She still had to make the decision. So think about God's providence in your life. What was your upbringing like? What natural talents has God given you? What challenges or even tragedies have you had to live through that have helped shape your life, helped shape who you are? Where have you messed up in life? Now, now we know that God doesn't make mistakes, but we sure do, right? And I believe God can even take the mistakes of our life and he can turn them around and use them as a part of his beautiful plan. So where has God placed you? What's your circle of influence? With whom has God given you favor? You see, the providence and the positioning part, that's up to God. But the participation part, that's up to us. Because remember, God's plan requires willing participants. Let me put it this way. Right now, we're in the middle of the World Cup, and I love soccer. Any soccer fans in the house? Yeah. It's been fun to watch U.S. this week. They've had a couple good games. They're gone on to the next round. Let's just say for a moment that the U.S. team calls me up this afternoon, and they say, Doug, 
We've had a couple of injuries. We want you to fly down to Brazil and play with us in the next match against Belgium. And let's just pretend for a moment that I actually have the skill to do so. Do you think that I'm going to be willing to go? You can bet your life I'm going to be willing to go. Now, I might be a little bit apprehensive because I don't want to let the team down and I don't want to make a fool of myself, but you're not going to have to twist my arm. I'm going to go willingly. Well, God is calling each one of us to be a willing participant in his epic story, not just Esther or Moses or Abraham. He's calling you and I to get in the game, to get in his game, and the stakes are much higher than just a World Cup. So what if you don't know how God's plan includes you? You're not exactly sure what that means for you. Well, don't focus on you. Focus on what you know is already a part of his plan. And start with those closest to you, your spouse, your family. We know that God has a beautiful plan for marriages. So if your marriage is on the edge of brokenness, do not take the path of least resistance. Do not check out of the game. Be a willing participant in God's plan for complete restoration. It's going to cost you something, but it's worth it. And then beyond your family, look to those who are in need around you. Is it time to begin to reach out to those who are imprisoned, whether it be people who are physically in prison or people who are imprisoned to alcohol or drugs or other addictions? See, God has a plan for their lives, and maybe he's calling you to get involved in that plan. Or maybe you know an unwed mother who's looking for a place to stay. She's been kicked out of her home. God has a plan for that young lady. And maybe he's asking you to get involved. Or maybe he's asking you to reach out to the homeless or the hungry or the orphans or the widows. We know through scripture that God has a beautiful plan for the orphans and widows. I mean, Esther was an orphan. Look at the incredible plan he had for her life. Maybe he's calling you to get involved in his plan for those people. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Each one of us can do something. Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's going to happen. It is happening, even here at Hope. And you can get in God, involved in God's plan here at Hope by serving. If you're not yet serving, you hear us talk about this all the time. Begin to volunteer in an area and serve. Or by getting in a small group or like Jody in the video at the beginning, start a small group, step it up and get involved in God's plan. Or start by trusting God with your finances and allowing him to stretch your generosity. I believe that God has a plan for our finances as well. Or begin to share your story willingly, your story of how you found faith. Share that with others, inviting them into this journey. But you can be sure of this, God's plan will be met with opposition. Haman was a great example of that. And sometimes opposition will come from places that we least expect from our family members or from our boss, from coworkers, from a professor, from political leaders, from society itself. Sometimes resistance, opposition will even come from within ourselves. But as Jason reminded us last week, our God is bigger than our past, bigger than our excuses, and bigger than our opposition. But the bottom line is this. God is going to accomplish his will with us or without us. But wouldn't you rather be a participant than just a spectator on the sidelines? And here's the best news. We don't have to do this alone. He is with us. A thousand years before the story of Esther, 
Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land, and as he passes the baton of leadership to young Joshua, he says these famous words recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In a moment, the band is going to come back out and share a great song with us before we leave. But first, I want to ask you to bow your head as I pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the amazing story of Esther. How you invited Esther and Mordecai to be a part of your plan, to take a crucial role at an important time to accomplish your will. Now, God, I pray that you will open our eyes right now in this place today, open our eyes to how your providence has been at work behind the scenes of our life. Open our eyes to what you're calling us to, how you're asking us to courageously and willingly get in the game. And God, give us a growing discontent in our hearts to ever settle for anything less than the very best that you have for us. God, we thank you for inviting us into your epic story. And we thank you for promising to journey with us through life. Never leave us or forsake us. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.